Father, thank you for the promise of your presence with us. Thank you for the reality of your presence with us. Thank you that you are with us to hold us fast, to strengthen us, to empower us. Thank you for being a close God and a personal God. Thank you for sending Jesus, your only son, who comes and dies on a cross, identifying himself with us, his closeness to us, demonstrated best as he hangs there, bleeding and dying in our place and for our sins. And so as we conclude our gathering together this morning around our Lord's table, may everything that is said and done point us to Jesus and his closeness to us and his death for us. So help us in the story of Ruth and Boaz to hear echoes of Jesus and see reflections of Jesus and his great love for us. What we do not know, show us. What we do not believe, convince us. And what we are not, be for us, I pray, as we open your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. And I will echo what Pastor Brandon has already said. It has been a blessing to sing along with you this morning and to hear your voices wash over me as Joanna and I sit together down front here. Just love singing with you. Well, here we go. Ruth. This is episode eight, believe it or not. Episode 8 in Ruth's story, I encourage you to open your copies of the Scriptures to Ruth chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. We have a Bible right there for you in the seat back of the pew in front of you. It's page 264 in that copy of the church Bible. And before we begin here, let me just remind you, we are concluding our gathering this morning around our Lord's table. And so if you made your way into the auditorium this morning without picking up a communion cup, go ahead and make your way out to the lobby now and take care of that. You can catch right back up with us when you come back in. Can I just be open and honest with you this morning as I begin that the most difficult task I face each week in preaching Ruth's story to you is picking up her story in the middle of the story. Now, I feel like how many of you are old enough to remember television episodes that used to be part one and part two? You old enough to remember those? Like Little House on the Prairie. I feel like I'm living in a perpetual to-be-continued episode of Little House on the Prairie. You know, and then the next episode, it opens with previously on Little House on the Prairie. So here we go. Previously, in Ruth and Boaz's story, we are, we are given a woman. We're introduced to a woman named Ruth, who is a Moabite. She has come to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And what we need to remember is that they had both, both Ruth and Naomi, had lost their husbands during Naomi's family's 10-year stay in Moab. And when Ruth and Naomi now arrive in Bethlehem, which is Naomi's hometown, remember, 
they come back with nothing. And that's what Naomi says to her friends. I went away full, with a full family, full hands, full heart, and God has brought me back empty with nothing. I've lost my two sons, and I've lost my husband. But Ruth stands with her. Even though they come back to Bethlehem with, with nothing, with, with no food, no family, and no future. But on the way back to Bethlehem, you'll remember at the end of chapter 1 of Ruth's story that Ruth promises Naomi she will care for Naomi and she has professed faith in Naomi's God, the one and only true God, the Jehovah God of the Bible. And after then arriving in Bethlehem, Ruth takes the initiative to go foraging for food in the fields around Bethlehem when she happens upon a field that belongs to a man named Boaz. And although she doesn't know it, when she comes into his field, Boaz is a relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. And that means that Boaz is qualified to be Ruth's redeemer and her husband. But as we make our way through the story, yes, you know, there's, there's a part of us that thinks, you know, maybe this is going to go somewhere between Ruth and Boaz. But Although Boaz seems to have taken an interest in her, he really hasn't been making a move with her. He's been so focused on the barley and wheat harvests. And you can see and hear Naomi getting a bit restless here. And so she's going to make, she's going to play matchmaker here. She's going to give love a little push. And she knows that this very night... Boaz is going to be down with his harvesters at the threshing floor. They're threshing wheat. They're threshing barley. And she knows that Boaz is going to spend the night there beside a big pile of grain to guard that grain against thieves. It's a risky move for Ruth to take. But she is going to do what Naomi asks her to do. She's going to, in the middle of the night, make her way down to the threshing floor. She's going to, she's going to wait and watch for Boaz to go to sleep beside that big pile of grain. And she's going to take this risk because she wants to make good on her promise to care for Naomi. So down to the threshing floor, Ruth goes. And after Boaz has fallen asleep, she sneaks up to him, she uncovers his feet, and she lies down at his feet just as Naomi had instructed her. And then she waits and she watches for Boaz to awaken. All right, let's pray and we'll go home, okay? So, uh, not really. Let's pick up the story, the continuing story. I'm going to begin reading in verse 6 of Ruth chapter 3. So Naomi, or excuse me, so Ruth went down to the threshing floor. She did just as, his, as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at that end, at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly, she uncovered his feet, and she lay down. At midnight, the man was startled. He turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, 
May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. And so she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, Just wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of our God. And one of the reasons I love the word of God, one of the reasons I love Ruth's story in the word of God is that without telling us that it's teaching us theology, it is actually showing us how theology impacts our everyday lives on the street level of life. Back in chapter 2, you remember it was, it was God's providence when Ruth just happens upon a field that belongs to Boaz. Here in chapter 3, it isn't so much God's providence, it's God's imminence. Let me explain. If someone were to ask you this morning, where is God? What would you say? Where is God right now? Okay, I didn't expect you to answer. <laughs> and yeah, you, 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 you're ahead of me, all right. So, so, so let me ask it again and just stay quiet. I know I'm always asking you to respond. So um, let me try this again. So if someone were to ask you, where is God this morning? What would you say? Don't, don't say anything. <laughs> I think most of us would probably say, if the stage hadn't already been set this morning by our singing and I think most of us would say, well, he's in heaven, right? And is that true? Is it true? Yes. Okay, now you can respond. Okay. <laughs> yes, our God reigns from heaven. He is above all because he is transcendent over all. Listen to this from Psalm 97, verse 9. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. But what's so wow about our God is that he is ruling and reigning from heaven while he is simultaneously present here on earth. So he isn't just transcendent. He is imminent. He isn't aloof. He is near. He is right here, right now, in every here and every now. 
Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, hint, hint, on a threshing floor in the middle of the night? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? And Boaz gets that about our God and his presence. Boaz is a God-saturated guy because he is a God-conscious guy. He is constantly aware that God is always right there. And we know that because Boaz is always including God. Have you noticed this? Boaz is always including God in his conversations. Back in chapter 2. Very first time we meet Boaz, he's greeting his harvesters out in the field. And he says, hey guys, good to see you. The Lord bless you. And they respond with, right back at you, Boaz, the Lord be with you. Now, is that the way you talk at work? Is that the way your boss talks to you at work? And then the very first time Boaz meets Ruth in chapter 2. He strikes up a conversation with her. It's deja vu all over again. Ruth, may Jehovah God repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You, know, you don't talk that way in the everyday unless you're living with a perpetual awareness of God's presence. It's the big idea that God's personal presence with us makes a radical difference in us. How relevant is God's personal presence on the street level of your life? How often do we think about God being right there with us when we're home alone, when we're working at work, that he's listening in on every conversation at school, he is even watching how we drive and how we respond to how others drive. I mean, does God's daily presence, his ongoing perpetual presence with us really affect us like it did with a young man who grew up with my wife Joanna in Texas? His name was Stephen. He was born with cerebral palsy. The doctors told his parents that he would never walk, but he did. And then they told him that he would never drive, but he did. And every time Stephen climbed into his car and buckled his seatbelt, even if there were others with him in the car, before he, well, in the old days we used to turn the ignition, now we push the button. Before he turned the key in the ignition, Stephen would pause and pray. Something like this. Lord, he would pray out loud. I know that you are here with me to help me drive safely. So please keep me safe and keep the others around me safe as well. You see, Stephen lived with an ongoing awareness of God's presence, just like Boaz. Just like Boaz, while he's sleeping at the end of a pile of grain in the middle of the night on a threshing floor so that when Ruth uncovers his feet and lies down at his feet, he is not going to take advantage of her. 
He is going to show kindness to her. You see, when you know that God is just as present on this threshing floor as he is out in the barley field, when you are aware that God is just as here in the middle of the night as he is in the middle of the day, then you, like Boaz, will live with integrity. It is midnight now in Ruth's story, and something Something suddenly causes Boaz to awaken. It's probably that his feet are what? His feet are probably cold. And so as he's turning over, Boaz sees something that startles him like instantaneously wide awake. Parents, you know exactly what this feels like and looks like. Because it's the middle of the night and you're asleep. When suddenly, even though you're asleep... Something feels weird, like somebody's right there with you, watching you. And you open your eyes and you see two wide open eyeballs inches from your face. Daddy, are you asleep? I was. What's wrong? Nothing, Daddy. Just wanted to say hi. I can't sleep. That's Ruth right here. She can't sleep. She's waiting on Boaz. She's watching Boaz. And as he awakens to turn over, he catches a glimpse of her staring at him. And he asks a question. Now, wouldn't you love to know the tone with which he asks the question? The word he emphasizes in this three-word question. Was it? Who are you? Or was it, who are you? Or was it, who are you? We don't know. But we do know that he doesn't know who she is because she wasn't there when he went to sleep. And we do know that this is the moment that Ruth has been waiting for while he's been asleep. And when he asks, who are you? Notice, she's prepared She knows what she's going to say. And it's interesting that she doesn't say, I am Ruth, your lover. I am Ruth, your future wife. No, notice here that she says, I am Ruth, your servant. It's the same way she described herself to Boaz back in chapter 2, verse 13, out in the field. So like Boaz, she's the same person here on the threshing floor that she was back in the field. She's not here to seduce him. She's here to make a request of him. And what does she say? Spread your wings over me, your servant, for you are a redeemer. You have the family ties, Boaz, to be my man. And I want you to know that I want you to be my man because you are a godly man, a man I can find rest in, a man I can settle down with, a man I can find a home in. So be my permanent protector and provider. And what's interesting here is that when you go back and read God's law given through Moses, that God made a provision for a woman in Ruth's position to make a request like this for marriage from a kinsman redeemer. So Ruth is not out of line here. Ruth is not demanding from Boaz. She's actually communicating her love and desire to Boaz that she's willing to be the wife of Boaz. 
And Boaz responds in a very Boaz kind of way. You know, we aren't surprised that Boaz doesn't take advantage of Ruth in this situation. Because we know Boaz. And he responds in a very Boaz kind of way. He says, get this, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Now, let's just pause here for a moment because I've had several people ask me over the past several weeks, was Boaz a lot older than Ruth? Because he's always referring to her as what? My daughter. So many Bible scholars do believe that Boaz is older than Ruth, perhaps 15 to 20 years older than Ruth, because he's already built a booming business in Bethlehem. He's a man of stature and respect in Bethlehem. Ruth then is probably in her early 20s, Boaz probably in his early 40s. But there's something else here. There's there's no evidence that Boaz has been previously married. But there is ample evidence, even here on the threshing floor at midnight, of his integrity. When he says, Ruth, may you be blessed by Jehovah God. Do you see it? Do you hear it again? There it is. Boaz is invoking God's name in this late night conversation when he finds himself in a potentially compromising situation. Even when nobody else is around. Even when nobody else is watching. He knows God is, that he's right there. He always is, which is why Boaz is not going to draw attention to Ruth's looks or to her figure, but to her character. He says this, he says, Ruth, you wanting to be my wife is an even greater kindness than the kindness you've been showing to your mother-in-law, Naomi. I am totally blown away. Now, I'm adding a little bit here, but, but I think this is the idea Ruth is, or excuse me, Boaz is giving. I'm blown away that you would want to be my wife. Let me just make a point of application here. Guys who are married, are you still blown away that your wife wants to be your wife? You, you tell her that? Joanna, my wife, probably knows what I'm going to be preaching on this week because she gets it at home during the week. And so this week, a couple of times, I knew this was coming, and I want to, be, I want to practice what I preach, so I, I've told her, listen, I'm blown away that you want to be my wife. Do we say that to our wife? We tell her that. You tell the guys at work that? You tell your kids and grandkids that? Your golf buddies? Your small group? Do you talk up? Do you talk up your wife to others? Or do you tear her down with others? 1 Peter 3 verse 7 says that you are to show honor to her. Which means that, that how you speak about her isn't as much a reflection on her as it is on you. She isn't an old hag. She isn't the old lady. She's the woman God gave to you. 
and he's listening to how you speak to her and about her. The one who said, I do, to you. And still says, I do, every day. She's with you. That should blow you away. I know some of you guys. I know a lot of you guys. And I say to you, that should blow you away that she's still with you. And if that doesn't blow you away that she's still with you, maybe we should talk about how integrity and humility don't just go together, they grow together. And that's why Boaz is blown away by Ruth. He says, Ruth, you, you, you could have had any guy, any younger guy, whether poor or rich, but you haven't gone after any of them. I can't believe you would want me. So, my daughter, do not fear. I'd be honored to do what you ask. Because everyone in town knows what kind of woman you are. You are a worthy woman. You are a virtuous woman. You are a Proverbs 31 kind of woman. And that's noteworthy. Now get this. This is so cool. That's noteworthy. Because many Bible scholars believe that in the original Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth did not follow the book of Judges like it does in our English Bible. Many Bible scholars believe that the book of Ruth actually followed the book of Proverbs. And so if you're reading through the old Hebrew Bible, you would read all about the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, and you would turn the page, and boom, Ruth. But that isn't all we might miss in our English Bibles, because the Hebrew word that Boaz uses here to describe Ruth is the very same word that is used to describe Boaz back in chapter 2, verse 1. So what we have here is a worthy man who's a godly man and a virtuous woman who's a godly woman, which means that this is a marriage, if it happens, this is a marriage made in heaven. And young people, young people, are you still with me? Because this is where you would probably expect me to say, that when you're looking for a future spouse, godliness is the number one trait you look for. And that is true. That is very true. But one of the things, if you look closely at this story, one of the things we learn from this story is that the best way to find a godly guy or girl is to first be a godly guy or girl. So focus on being before you focus on finding. Because both Ruth and Boaz are godly before they meet, which is why they're attracted to the godliness in each other when they meet. So young people, focus on being godly before you focus on finding a godly guy or girl. And this is where we are in this story. It is so good because when, when Boaz says, Ruth, 
Ruth, I'll, I'll do what you're asking. You're the kind of woman I want. You're a godly woman. You're a, you're a virtuous woman. And we're thinking, woohoo, you know, finally, here we are, almost four chapters into their story, and finally it's official. He says, I will do what you ask, right? I mean, we can hear wedding bells ringing. They're going to the chapel and they're, what? Okay, so you're, this is where I want you to participate, all right? They're going to the chapel and they're going to get Hold on. Not so fast. This may be the shortest engagement in human history because Boaz says, Ruth, it is true that I am a redeemer. My family ties do qualify me to marry you. And then I can imagine him taking a deep breath. And even though it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission, I have to obey what God has said. So please listen, Ruth. I know you're not aware of this, so don't miss this. There's another man, a closer relative than I. And so he gets dibs on you. If he will redeem you and marry you, okay. There's nothing I can do about that. But if he won't, then as sure as Jehovah God lives, the God in whose presence I am making this promise, I will redeem you. I will marry you, Ruth. I'll take care of this thing first thing in the morning. So just lie back down and get some sleep. And we kind of chuckle at that, right? Because there's no way she's sleeping. And there's no way he's sleeping. And it's all because rather than looking for a loophole in God's law, Boaz will honor God's law because God is right there as a witness to everything he's doing and everything he's saying. You know, Boaz could have said, you know, I think God will understand because I've been the one providing for you, Ruth, and protecting you over the past few months. I mean, it's obvious that God wants us together. You just happened upon my field, right? It's obvious God is in this. So, and, and, and on top of all that, you've never even met the other guy. You don't even know he exists. So it's okay, God, God will understand if we play fast and loose with his law. You ever been there? Ever been confronted by a complication where you're tempted to respond with a justification? Where you're tempted to rationalize and justify disobeying God? Let me give you an example. It's like if you were to be completing a tax return. By the way, that's it's that time of the year. You're completing your tax return and you discover that if you report your side gig income, that you will not be receiving a refund this year. But here's the thing. You've already spent that refund money as a down payment on your dream vacation. And so if you don't report that income, excuse me, if you do report that income, you'll have to use the money that you are going to put in the offering at church to offset the refund that you won't be receiving. 
God wouldn't want that to happen, right? I mean, God wants me to put money in the offering plate at church, right? So it's okay if I don't report that side gig income. Is it? You see, complications tempt us to make justifications and to play God rather than submit to God. So let's be people of integrity who do what Ruth's great-great-grandson King Solomon tells us to do in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Now, before I tell you what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, wouldn't it be cool if, if when Solomon was writing this down, he was thinking back to this moment on the threshing floor to where his great-great-grandpa decided to do things God's way and to trust in the Lord rather than do things his own way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. And without telling you the rest of the story, that's exactly what God does with Boaz and Ruth. Because Boaz is unwilling to compromise God's law. And when we do that, we will be like Boaz, people who don't just guard our own integrity, but the integrity of others, like Boaz with Ruth here. She's been lying at his feet all night. There's no sexual encounter here. There's no hooking up here. There's no hanky-panky here. And so before dawn, when Ruth gets up to leave, leave, Boaz says, Hey, Ruth, this will be our little secret. I don't want anybody getting the wrong idea about the kind of girl you are because prostitutes tend to hang out around threshing floors, and that's not you. And that's when Boaz's integrity overflows into generosity. Ruth, before you go, I've got something for you. So hold out your cloak. Here are six measures of barley. I don't want you going back to Naomi empty-handed. And off Ruth goes back home before dawn, carrying what many scholars believe to be 75 pounds of barley. She's one strong woman. <laughs> and when she arrives home, Naomi probably hasn't slept all night. Because Naomi isn't blown away by the overwhelming amount of barley like she was back in chapter 2. There's only one thing on Naomi's mind. Ruth. Ruth, you're finally home. So what happened? What did Boaz say? How did it go? Is there a ring on your finger? And Ruth tells her everything. Naomi, I don't have a ring on my finger. I have something better because this bag of barley isn't just a gift from Boaz. It's the promise of Boaz that by this time tomorrow, there will be a man of this house in our house. We will have a family, finally. Whether it's Boaz or our closer relative, I can't tell you. But what I can tell you is that God hasn't only met our need for food. He's meeting our need for a family. So even though from your own lips, Naomi, you said that God had brought you back to Bethlehem empty, He hasn't left you empty. He has filled your hands with food.
and he is filling your heart with a family. But to be honest, Naomi, I'm wiped out. So please let me get some rest. Just wait a little longer, my daughter. It won't be long until you learn how it all turns out. Boaz won't rest until the matter is settled. He isn't just a man of overwhelming generosity. He's a man of impeccable integrity. And in Naomi's words about Boaz, we should be hearing echoes of Jesus and seeing reflections of Jesus. Jesus is the impeccably righteous one. He is the lavishly generous one. He is the one who pays the price with his own life to redeem us and to shelter all who will come to him under his love and grace and mercy, winning for us an eternal and forever future with God by bringing us into the family of God. Do you see Jesus in Boaz? So how does Jesus do all of that? It's 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous in the place of the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can give us a future and a hope and a forever family in the presence of our God. Only Jesus. It's Acts 4 verse 12. It says there is salvation in no one else. There is, it's not salvation in you. Not salvation in me. Not salvation in Boaz. There is salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's Jesus. So are you? Are you saved by Jesus? Are you saved from your sins, redeemed because Jesus took your sins and redeemed you from your sins by absorbing all the punishment for your sins. Do you have a future with God as a child of God in the family of God? Because by grace alone, through faith alone, you have taken shelter in the Son of God. Is that you? Can you stand with Ruth and Naomi saying, I have a future and I have a family? forever. Galatians 3 verse 26 says we are all the children of God by faith in Jesus. Is that you? Would you come to him? Would you trust in him? Would you repent of your sins and embrace him as your Lord and Savior and King by faith alone? And when you have believed on Jesus, and when you belong to Jesus, then there are two takeaways from this text for you. Number one, integrity. Integrity in life's big moments is forged in a thousand small moments. That's Boaz here. His integrity is forged. It's, it's built out in the everyday small moments and how he treats his employees out in the field, how he responds to a young foreign widow who is vulnerable and happens upon his field. 
So when then Boaz finds himself in a compromising situation on the threshing floor in the middle of the night, he's already set himself on a trajectory toward integrity. It's the same trajectory we see playing out in Joseph's life in the Old Testament when Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce him. Go back and read the story in Genesis 39. It was his faithfulness in the small things, the ordinary moments. And by the way, that that chapter emphasizes one phrase, the Lord was with him. And in those small things and ordinary moments, Joseph has set himself on a course to stand strong and retain his integrity in the big moment. And so when the big moment arrives, he runs. So faithfulness and godliness fleshed out in the thousand small everyday moments is doing something not just in those moments. It's setting you on a trajectory, a trajectory to retain your integrity when the heat is on in the big moment. So in all those small moments, do Psalm 101 verse 2. I will ponder the way that is blameless. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house when no one else is around and no one else is watching and no one else is listening because God is. He's there. He always is. And he is there to secondly, to empower us to retain our integrity in every situation. That's the second takeaway. God's presence with you empowers you to retain your integrity in every situation. And that's because, as John 15, verse 5 says, Jesus says in John 15, verse 5, without me, you can do nothing. So it's not about you digging down deep and finding that fiber of integrity. It's about Jesus being with you. And that's why the hero in Ruth's story is not so much Boaz. It's the one Boaz is pointing us to when he's saying, it's the Lord who blesses us. It's the Lord who is with us. It's the Lord who lives with us. The Lord who lives not only in heaven, but with us and in us, empowering us in every situation. It's Philippians 2 verse 13. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's how his perpetual and personal presence with us makes a radical difference in us. We are his people, called by his name, empowered by his presence, because he promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So as Isaiah 40 verse 31 says, when you find yourself in that big moment, that compromising situation, remember, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So let's come. Let's come to the table this morning. Let's feed our souls on all that God is for us in Jesus. Because he really is with us. And we know that 
because he laid down his life for us. So I'm going to ask us now if we could spend a moment in prayer, just individually, silently praying to God, searching out your heart, as 1 Corinthians 11 commands us to do, let each man examine himself and then let him eat. So let's prepare our hearts, let's center our hearts on the cross of Jesus. Father, we thank you for who you are and what you have done. We thank you for your son, Christ. Christ Jesus, who came to live among us. He came to be with us, to die for us, and rise again on our behalf. Lord, I pray that we would live with a constant awareness that you are right here, right now in every here and every now, giving us the strength to obey you in the small moments and the big moments. So now as we remember our Lord's death, may we do so faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen.